I'm going to take a moment just to make sure that everybody, uh, before you leave today, says, says their hellos and goodbyes to Bailey, who I know most of you might not even know her because she sits so quiet down here in the, in the front, um, but uh, she's been attending here for, for some time and get ready to go to Iowa, is that right, and to go to university there, so, uh, so we won't be seeing you around for a while, and you'll, you'll be missed here and appreciate you being part of our church family here. Are you able to stay around for the fellowship afterwards? Not to put you on the spot right now, but, but at least catch her, catch her before she leaves one way or another. Um, okay, I already let the kids go, right? So now we can, we can talk grown-up stuff. Uh, First and Second Kings uh, in particular. So make sure I don't have any other notes here in the beginning. I think that was it. So we're in Second Kings 13 to 17, uh, continuing what went wrong. Today we're going to cover a big uh, chunk of of uh, the narrative, but first I want to tell a cautionary tale. You know, a cautionary tale is a well, well-worn uh, genre. Uh, usually it's directed at kids, and it has kind of this formula where in the beginning of the story, someone's warned of certain danger or taboo, and then uh, the said person disregards that warning, and then they end up in some terrible fate. And there's not as many of these stories out now, because uh, now we see him as just slightly demented. But, um, but there's a bunch in, in folklore, but sometimes these stories are, are completely true. And there's one that I used to tell um, often whenever I was with some students around a campfire roasting marshmallows. In fact, some of you here might have even heard this tale, and I'll call this the sad tale of Scarface Marshmallow Boy. I met Scarface Marshmallow Boy when when I was just a kid myself. And <clears throat> I was around a campfire, and uh, he was across from me, and he had this scar along his cheek. And he relayed the story about how when he was uh, a younger kid, they were roasting some marshmallows, and you know how some kids like to light them on fire and then flick them up and blow them out? Well, somebody did that, marshmallows were flicking, and the marshmallow stuck on his face and burned, and he had this hideous scar Okay, it wasn't hideous, but he had this scar on his face, and so he told us the story. And then I've relayed this story numerous times when I'm with a bunch of students around a campfire, because although I have admitted uh, a fascination with fire and a fascination with marshmallows, I don't want to see a kid get scarred in the face with a burning marshmallow on my watch. So I tell that cautionary tale. Because uh, the easiest way to learn a really difficult lesson is through someone else's mistake. And that's, um, I, I think this is what a lot of the purpose of Second Kings is about for all of us. See, God doesn't want you to ruin your future, to ruin your, your family, to ruin your relationships, to ruin your reputation. He doesn't want you to ruin your soul. And so he gives us First and Second Kings as a cautionary tale. See, often we don't even realize we're in danger. We just go through life, and, and the danger is maybe so subtle, we don't realize what is at stake. But in truth, we are all prone to wander. Every single one of us is prone to wander, which is uh, the same as getting into danger. So here's our core message uh, from the books of 1st and 2nd Kings today is return to God before it's too late. It's kind of one of these ominous uh, uh, messages, like turn back, don't go that way. 
return to God before it's too late. We're going to look at four chapters really fast, uh, and then we're going to focus in on chapter uh, 17. So 13 to 16, the story just starts um, spiraling downward and picking up speed. It's this frenzy of activities, and when before uh, a king might be might have a couple of chapters or so. Now they have a, a couple of verses, and it's just king after king. And so I just want to give you a snapshot of these chapters. So again, more uh, you know charts of kings and genealogies because we we like these. Uh, so Judah uh, has King uh, Joash, and I'm using their last name to show what line they're from. Davidson. Uh, Joash was in the line of of David, who would be the line of the Messiah. Joash was little boy king who, who grew up. So that's in Judah. In Israel, Jehoahaz, Jehu's son, uh, becomes king. Remember, Jehu was the guy who just came in and cleaned house. Um, well, what we know of Jehoahaz, Jehu's son, is that he was severely defeated in battle by Hazael and Ben-Hadad II of Syria. And we've met both of those characters before. Actually, this is Ben Hadad II. So, just fascinating little side story. I don't have time for very many side stories, but um, but we know that Hazael was the commander of the original Ben Hadad. Uh, he he snuffed him out with a pillow in his sleep and killed him and took the throne. And then he names his kid Ben Hadad after the the king that he assassinated. So, just weird weird stuff happening there. Just that little side story. So. Uh, Jehoahaz was succeeded by uh, Jehoash, sometimes just called Joash. He fought and defeated uh, Amaziah in Judah. So he's fighting with Judah again. The truce is over. Um, part of, uh, he destroyed part of the holy city of Jerusalem. And here is God's assessment of Jehoahaz and Joash. Verse 2 of chapter 13 says, this is Jehoahaz. The Lord says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam. Verse 11 of that that chapter about Joash says, He he also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil and evil. Okay, then the story flips over to to the southern kingdom, and we have Amaziah, who I just mentioned was fighting uh, with the king of Israel. Uh, He followed Yahweh, but he kept the high places. So he didn't, you know, he didn't totally transform. In fact, these high places, some are still there. Uh, I was in Israel, and we visited some, uh, some famous old ruins of a gate that's up on a hill and, uh, from Solomon's time period. And there are still some of these, um, these high place uh, pillars of worship up on the hill. So not only did Solomon do it, a no-no in the first place, but all these generations of kings, and then all, these, all the things that have happened in the land of Israel since then, and it's still there. I mean, if it wasn't you know, a historic thing, I'd, I'd want to go just rip it down. But um, anyway, he didn't destroy the high places, but he did okay besides that. Uh, then Jeroboam II, throughout First uh, and Second Kings, whenever a king is bad in the north, they say he was bad just like Jeroboam. So somebody decided to name their son Jeroboam the second, and he was just uh, like his uh, great-great-great-grandfather, so to speak. Um, and 
chapter uh, 14, it says this about him. And Jeroboam II, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, back to uh, the south. Azariah, oh, he is also called Uzziah, so it's just to keep it complicated. But still in the line of David, the, the lineage of David is still being held intact. He accomplished some really great things, and he became really proud, and God struck him with leprosy. But, uh, but overall, he, he mostly followed the Lord. And so Chronicles details all his uh, obnoxious pride, and the author of Kings just leaves it out altogether. He doesn't tell about anything great that uh, Uzziah did. So he gets kind of burned by not being really mentioned much at all. Okay, so then we have uh, Zechariah. Did I double-click? Oh, no, we're here. We have Zechariah, Jehu's son, and he ends the line of Jehu because God said, uh, you'll last four generations on the throne. And when God says something, it, uh, it most certainly happens. Chapter 15, verse 9, Zechariah, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see some patterns developing here. Well, because God said that it lasts four generations, after that um, he was uh, assassinated and, and Shalom took the throne. He lasted exactly one month and uh, then he was assassinated by Menahem. Lots of great names. Well, when Menahem was, uh, was king in Israel, now we're introduced to Assyria. Not, not Syria, who we talked about before, but Assyria, the great rising world power during that time. And they came and they caused all kinds of problems in Israel and sometimes uh, in Judah. Uh, verse uh, 18 of chapter 15 says, Menahem did what was evil. <laughs> In the sight of the Lord. So you can see what these chapters are all about. Um, well, then his son, I'm going to say Pekahiah Menahem's son. So you want that on your name tag. Uh, he was, his claim to fame is that he was assassinated by uh, the captain of his army. So it's just, it's just spiraling out of control. All these assassinations and in horrible things happening, verse 24 of chapter 15 says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise, surprise. Then he, uh, he was succeeded, succeeded by Pekah, not of his family, because uh, he was assassinated as well. And Pekah took the throne. And during his time, Assyria came in and attacked several cities and took a bunch of captives away. And, uh, but Pekah was assassinated by Hosea. That was his claim to fame. So then we, we go over one more time. Okay, maybe there's two more guys. On, uh, on the southern end, in Judah, uh, Jotham, David's sin, he becomes king. He, he did some, some great things. And in verse 34... Uh, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's always such a relief. Okay, there's a good one in here. And then we have Ahaz, uh, that's also in Judah. And he was attacked by Syria, but he made a pact with Assyria, who defeated Assyria. But it's bad idea to partner uh, with Assyria. Because the Lord told him again and again, like, I'll protect you. Don't go running down to Egypt. Don't go make packs here and there. But... Ahaz didn't listen. 
And this is Ahaz Davidson, you know, in the line of the Messiah. Okay, uh, chapter 16, verses 2 to 3 says this. And he, this is Ahaz, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. So the infection is spreading. He even burned his son as an offering. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and in every, under every green tree. And then we, we get up to where we, we are in chapter 17. We're introduced to Hosea, who assassinated Pekah. And he, attacked, he was attacked and subdued by Assyria. And he became a vassal of Assyria. And then he became a prisoner. And chapter 17, verse 2 says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, there's four chapters for you. The, the summary, this is what happened. Lots of just bad, bad stuff. And here's, here's the scoreboard from these chapters. Judah, three good kings. And only, those kings are only kind of pretty good. And one totally rotten one. Israel gets zero and nine just uh, rotten, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So from all that, just a few observations real quick before we get into um, the, the real heart of the matter in, in chapter 17, which I think is a real key chapter in this whole book. Um, uh, a few thoughts. One is, uh, from the observations from these uh, four chapters, one is there's this continued spiral downward politically and spiritually. It's just, um, here's some of my kids' artwork. I know they're a little embarrassed when I show their artwork. Um, They've gotten better. Um, so uh, the top one just summarized these chapters by uh, people killing each other with swords. I'm not sure if that's the sun in the background or if that's a head flying. I really don't know. But And then the bottom one, I, I think in reference to the idolatry, it just says very bad. So that's, that's these chapters. This is spiral down into a total mess. Um, the, the second thing I want to point out is that, that Judah also is following in line. They're going down the same uh, tank, so to speak. And so, real important for us reading, because uh, this is written to uh, the remnants of Judah, God's people, and tells this story. And so, uh, it's also written to us, God's people, to say, hey, take, take a look. Okay, uh, the third thing we notice in these four chapters is the rising power of Assyria. And so, you can kind of tell... The inevitable is going to happen in this cautionary tale. Chapter 17, verses 5 to 6, says this, and this kind of sets us up. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land, and he came to Samaria, which is the, you know, the, the capital of, of uh, the northern kingdom. And for three years he besieged it, and in the ninth year of Hosea, the, son of Assyria, the, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And here we have the final, really just decimation of the northern kingdom of Israel. We've seen the kingdom divide, and we see this kind of back and forth and conflict, and now we finally see the complete ruin of Israel. And like any good uh, cautionary tale, it leaves us no question of what went wrong, <laughs> and it's going to lay that out for us. Um, when we got a chance to go to um, 
to England and, and spend some time with our daughter over there. Um, we went to the British Museum, and they actually have uh, this um, uh, engraving that covers all these walls here. Um, well, not that guy in the middle, but all on the walls. And it's an engraving from Assyria that shows their conquest of, of uh, Israel and their, their battles with uh, Judah. So it's really kind of a fascinating thing there. I, I can't read in it. It's uh, some kind of cuneiform or something. So, um, so first second Kings, it's, it's not simply a history book that's saying, oh, here's what happened with all the kings. You know, like you would just read in history in school. But it's an urgent message for God's people. It's an urgent message for each of us. And like a good cautionary tale, the point is so clear. Verse 7, verse seven of chapter 17, it says this. And this, all of these terrible things, the downfall of the northern kingdom, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So in case there was any question, it's answered. Whenever I tell about Scarface Marshmallow Boy when we're around the fire, nobody asks me at the end, but how do you get a scar? Because it's obvious, like our story today. So 2 Kings 17, we're going to look at at verses 7 to 18 in the time we have left here. We're going we're to jump around a little bit because they're, I'm going to clump them by themes rather than in order. The main point, again, is just return to God. <laughs> return to God before it's too late. But then we ask, but what am I returning from? Well, here's seven things to return from, and some are rather subtle, and some are really not. So, first of all, Return to God from simply disregarding Him. And this is where it all starts. We just don't uh, give God the credit. We're not mindful of Him. We're not aware of Him. We don't give Him the honor that's due. Uh, verse 7, as you continue on, it says this, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. See, God had miraculously delivered them uh, out of all these different things, in particular from, from Egypt, and he cared for them, and manna in the wilderness, and done all these things. And so the author here brings that in. They didn't just ignore you know, some vague God out there. They ignored God who, who, who delivered them. <laughs> and if you have uh, trusted Christ as your Savior, then he's delivered you from, from sin and shame and and he's secured eternity with Christ and, re- in relation, and restore the relationship with your Heavenly Father and all those things. And when we go through life just not mindful of him, it is such an offense to our Heavenly Father. Verse 14 mentions uh, the people they did not believe, they didn't trust in the Lord their God. So in this little chunk that we're looking at today, that little phrase, their God, is mentioned you know, maybe five or six times back again and again. It's not just God like the concept of a deity. It's the personal God of the people, and they, uh, they ignored him. And I thought of sometimes, I've heard some teenagers um, pretend their parents uh, don't exist. This was... The best I can find of that kind of, uh, you know, whatever kind of look to, to parents of a, of a teenager. And uh, I've heard this happens. 
And the reason it's so hurtful is because the parent took that child as, you know, as an infant, brought him or her home from the hospital, you know, fed and cared, bathed and cuddled and provided and year after year after year, and then all of a sudden, you know, they pretend uh, you don't exist. It is such an offense. And I actually did this, uh, well, actually, I did, I pretended my whole family didn't exist, um, when I was a teenager, maybe junior high age, there were six kids in our family, and it was just embarrassing somehow going, you know, to the store or something all together, and my mom would say, all right, come on, gang. Like, ah, come on, don't. And so, you know, I'd, I'd walk, you know, 20 paces behind my family. Like, I didn't, you know, I don't know these people, but I look exactly like all of them, so it didn't work. But it's that, it's that idea of, you know, ah, I'm not part of this. So they, they disregarded God who had done everything for them. And that's where it all starts. But they went way beyond just ignoring God. They, they just flat out ignored his instructions. <laughs> they, they didn't heed his word, things that he said uh, ever so clearly. Uh, this comes up again and again in this, these paragraphs. Um, verse 12 says, they served idols, of which the Lord said, don't do this. <laughs> verse 13 and 14, the Lord warned them, Israel and Judah, by every prophet every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways. And he said, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. Then continuing in 15, 16, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. And they despised the warnings he gave them. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord, their God. Again, their God. So God gave them all these real clear instructions. Don't do this. This will cause bad things to happen. And they did exactly those kinds of things. This is a major point, I think, in the books of First and Second Kings is, is don't ignore God's instructions. Re- return to him and stop ignoring him. Um, this a quote attributed to Mark Twain is really amusing, but also point, pointed. <laughs> it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. So I think sometimes we like to talk about, you know, conflicts or questions in the Bible or complicated things, but the parts that really bother us deep down are the parts that are, that are too clear. <laughs> like when God says, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's just super simple to understand, hard to do. Uh, He says, forgive. How often? Like 490 times for the same offense in the same day. Or he says, submit to one another, or flee youthful lust, or be hospitable to strangers. It's just these kind of simple little things God said, and uh, we just like to ignore those sometimes. And God says, return back from that. Stop ignoring these things. My instructions return to me by carefully observing all that is written in this book. So, return to God from ignoring his word. Third, return to God from chasing empty pursuits. Uh, Interesting, uh, in verse 15, it says, they went after false idols and became false. This is the uh, English Standard Version. Uh, Quite literally, it's they went after 
uh, an empty or vain thing. They went after a vapor or a breath, nothingness, and they became nothingness. You might say they chased after empty pursuits and they became empty. Uh, sometimes uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message just has a, a bite to it, and it says they lived, like a, they lived a nothing life and they became nothings. I thought, well, what, what's a, a nothing life? It's just um, things that don't last, things without eternal value, things that are a vapor. Like the tragedy of just living for accumulating stuff, you know, I want that one more thing, and you know, this hits home this time of year when all the catalogs show up in our, our uh, mailbox or our email box or whatever. Or maybe it's just the tragedy of just living for playing, whether that's playing uh, golf or playing video games or playing whatever. Maybe just living for the next experience, the next place we're going to travel or the next food we'll eat or the next adventure we'll have. Or living for recognition, you know, the, the titles and the awards. All these things are just temporary. It's, uh, it's nothing pursuits. And they chased these nothing empty things and they became hollow inside. Uh, John Piper wrote a book kind of all, all about this same theme called Don't Waste Your Life. And he says, uh, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all spheres of life. That's, that should be our, our heart's goal. The wasted life is the life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. So we think about you know, the things that, that get us up in the morning, the things that drive us, the things that push us forward. Are these, are these empty things? <laughs> or are these, uh, are, are these uh, a passion for just Christ? to know him, to follow him, to obey him. So they became nothings, and they needed to return, and we need to return if that's where our hearts have been. Okay, fourth. Well, this gets all particularly difficult when everybody around us is pursuing uh, these things. It makes it ever harder for us to say, no, no, that's a waste of time, or that's a waste of effort, etc. And this was a core problem with the Israelites and with us is that uh, we tend to embrace culture's values. We love the things that the people around us uh, tend to love, uh, which means we worship the things around us that the people tend to worship. So we need to return to God from embracing the culture's values. As verse 8 says, uh, these are complaints against the people, they walked in the customs of the other nations. Verse 11, and they made offerings on all the high places just as the other nations did whom the Lord had carried away before them. Verse 15, and they followed the nations that were around them. They embraced the worship of the people around. This, this is where all the kingdoms went bad in the first place, is uh, with Solomon. Remember, he had lots of wives, and his wives came from, from other faiths, other, other nations, and pretty soon, his wife's uh, worship pulled his worship away from the worship of God. And this was when uh, the grand, glorious nation of, uh, uh, of Israel and Judah combined uh, started to tank. And First and Second Kings tells the rest of the story of what actually became. The problem was they first started by just adopting the view of the people around them. And so Israel's kind of a, a microcosm of each of us. Uh, we are... 
we, are, we belong to God. He's given us his, uh, his instructions and, and uh, the way that we communicate with him and live with him and know him. And yet, we're plopped down in the middle of people who don't believe that way. And so, this is a huge warning to all of us to say, I need to just go back to what God says and not adopt the mindset of the people that are all around us. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 12 when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, by having your mind renewed. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this place that we live in. So, does culture set your values and beliefs, the things that are important, the, the, the moral judgments you make, things about human sexuality or origins or the nature of truth or about telling the truth or about materialism, just all these things. Surrounding cultures say it's one way and God says it's a different way. So we, we just have to return to God from embracing the culture's values. I, I know this is all somewhat of a, Kind of a heavy message um, because it's this climactic chapter 17 that says, here's, here's all that went wrong. And don't, don't make the same mistake. You really don't want to go there. So fifth thing, return to God from a self-centered religion. And some of you, if you are here several weeks back, um, and recall when we talked about Jeroboam the first time and Basically, the, the kingdom had just ripped into Jeroboam in the north. Um, he was trying to kind of keep people happy and maintain the religion, but the temple and the priests were in the south. So it would be really difficult to have everybody travel down there. It would be really embarrassing to, you know, uh, sorry, I know we just broke away from you guys, but we need to come use your temple. And it would just be really hard in a lot of ways. So he gets this great idea of making these two uh, calf gods, calling them the same God of Israel, Yahweh, and let's just worship these. We'll put them in conveniently located places, you know, at a convenient place near you, and you can worship however you want. We'll make anybody a priest. Oh, you want to be a priest? Okay, you're a priest, you're a priest. And they just made it all so, so easy and, you know, uh, people-centered, but God had told them how he wanted it done. That was the sin of Jeroboam, that all through these books it keeps saying, Oh, this guy messed up in the sin of Jeroboam, this uh, self-centered religion. Um, in verse 16, says that they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves these metal images of two calves. These are, these are Jeroboam's calves to replace um, the worship that was just too hard to go down to the temple. So this was the North's ongoing problem, and our point several weeks back when we looked at Jeroboam was that genuine, you know, true religion, it's over when I place myself over my religion, when I make it all about me. So I think this is kind of how it, it looks now is if we think, well, yeah, I, I love, you know, my Christian faith is important to me and I'm, I'm happy as long as, you know, it, it's comfy there and church is at a convenient time for me and nobody sits in my, my seat and they play the kind of music that I like, and, uh, you know, they keep things kind of, you know, real easy for me to, to digest, and, and it's all about, about us. God says, no, it's not about you at all. When we have an attitude that religion's fine and comfy and convenient and easy and entertaining, 
and that's what becomes important, then, uh, then that's idolatry. Even if, even if we call it all the same things that true religion is, it, it's not. Okay, we have seven things, and this is five of them. And these first five, I think, in some ways are quite subtle. And in a sense, I think that makes it sometimes hard, um, or it makes it easy for us to miss. But I think it also means that I think if we look around this room, at, I think each of us struggle with at least one of these things. And I hope the point that's taken here is like, oh, yeah, we're not talking about some you know, crazy thing if somebody went way off the deep end and they need to return. We're talking about the day-to-day decisions of, oh, I've been, I've been kind of pushing God out. I've been kind of too involved in these things. I've been subtly adopting some values in the world that, that um, are not of Christ. And I think all of us need to take a, take a, a check right here and say, okay, what, what are these, which of these things apply to me right now and where do I need to return? Maybe it's these little shifts in the course, but, you know, over time, a little couple degrees makes a huge, huge difference. So now, the last two. Maybe there's some people in here that, so far, this is just doesn't phase them because maybe you're uh, just overwhelmed with something in your life that you, you, know, you, you know you're in bad shape. And uh, it's, so I think these address those things. Uh, sixth thing, return to God from, from secret sin. Verse 9 says, The people of Israel, they did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. These first five, you might even call them uh, socially acceptable sins. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, well, that's no big deal. It's kind of subtle. We all just be happy together. But there's some sins that are just, we're just too ashamed of, and we're, we're secret, secret sins that we hide in our in our hearts or in the privacy of our, of our homes, and we wouldn't want anybody to know or anybody to talk about, and there's nothing socially acceptable about them at all. Whether it's getting caught up in looking at sexually explicit images or books or, or mistreating your kids or your spouse when in the privacy of your home, or, or maybe it's just things in your mind that you would, you would think about and mull over, and you would just hope that nobody has a mind-reading machine. Uh, but the Lord does. And that's where it all starts, in the mind. And Jesus speaks to this in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 22. He says, I say to you that anyone who's angry with his brother, he'll be liable for murder. It's like that angryness, angry bitterness in the heart. It's like, that's like killing that person. <laughs> that, that's a hidden sin. Verse 28, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. These, these secret sins of the mind Jesus exposes. If you've somebody who's a, kind of an enemy of yours, somebody who's ticked you off in some way, somebody who's caused you grief, and you, you kind of fantasize their ruin, you know, you think through like, oh, I hope this terrible thing happens to them. That, Jesus says, well, that's like murdering them. Return from the secret sins. The problem with the secret sins that are just kind of hidden in the heart and nobody knows is eventually it gives birth, as James says, to, to death. <laughs> it, uh, that, little, uh, that little baby of lust grows up to become uh, death. And, uh, and it becomes the unthinkable sin, the thing that we never thought we would do. 
And so return to God from unthinkable sin. This, this, reaches, uh, this reaches to the ends, to, to everywhere. We see this progression in kings, the getting comfortable with the surrounding culture, the neglecting God's word, the getting caught up in empty pursuits, secret sins, and then unthinkable sins. And this is how the, that uh, section ends in verses 16 and 17 again. I think we looked at 16, but then we'll, we'll blend into 17. It says, and, and they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. You know, they didn't pay attention to what he said. They made for themselves the metal images of two calves, this kind of customized religion. And they made an Asherah, and they worshipped all the host of heaven, and they served Baal, and they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. And they used divination and omens, and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. It's just... It's just the unthinkable. Like how, how did they get there? I'm pretty sure they didn't start off thinking that was where they wanted to be, but that's where they, they got. Uh, one more time from the message of these same verses. He says, they, they threw out everything God, their God, had told them. They replaced him with two statue gods shaped like bull calves and then a phallic pole for the whore goddess Asherah. And they worshiped cosmic forces, sky gods and goddesses, and they frequented the sex and religion shrines of Baal. They even sank so low as to offer their own sons and daughters as sacrificial burnt offerings. They indulged in all the black arts of magic and sorcery. In short, they prostituted themselves to every kind of evil available to them. It's just the unthinkable. Obscene perverted worship, the, the sacrifices of children by fire and sorcery, witchcraft, just, it's just horrific. As I thought about that, there, there's a couple little lessons that came to mind. And one is, we got to urgently re- return from those subtle sins because we don't know where that will take us. Because it doesn't, it doesn't start with the unthinkable. <laughs> That's what it, it ends up. But the other thing I thought is, the mention of this, I think means there's hope for all of us. <laughs> and maybe you're thinking of, oh, there's something in my past or there's something in my present that's just is too much, it's too big. Well, the response, whether it's the subtle thing or the huge thing, it's the same. It's to return to God. Return, run into his arms. You know, the prodigal son, he wandered, he did his thing, he went way off the deep end. In the darkest place, he did one thing right, and that's he returned to his father. And that's, that's the invitation. If you're still alive and you're here, then it's not too late. We can return to the Father. And how did the Father respond in the story? And how does our Heavenly Father respond? Luke 15, 19 says, While he, the wandering prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and he ran, and he embraced them. And that's what he does for us. Whether you've strayed a few degrees, or you just ran, just jumped totally off the deep end, like, just come back. Come back to the Father with open arms. I think the invitation to all of us and, and the challenge for all of us is simply don't, don't hesitate to run into his open arms. First and Second Kings is not a book to tell us how naughty Israel was. That would be kind of boring and kind of pointless, but it's a, 
It's a vital, urgent message for each of us that says, come back, (laughs) return to God from wherever you are. And it's a hard message, but I think it's a message of hope as well. And I'm so glad that he takes us back into his loving arms. And I just want to thank him for that right now. Lord God, uh, I know just personally that we're prone to wander, all of us, in little ways, in big ways. And I am so thankful that you are there with open arms waiting for us uh, to return. You've provided such big opportunities. You've provided us the truth. You've provided us uh, the way. And uh, may we embrace you and, and return. And I pray that today we would do that. Maybe there's some uh, here that are really struggling with something or they've just wandered far and long. Uh, may today be the day that they come back into your, into your loving arms. And this is our, this is our plea We're so thankful for your mercy for us and your love for us. And we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.